Philemon 1 through 25. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Epipha, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not become by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner... Receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, and we do thank you that it is given by your very mouth. So I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to hear and apply this scripture. Help me to preach it clearly and without any defilement of my flesh. Press into our hearts and our minds, Father, the word that your spirit wants us to have today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning again. So we are four weeks away from Easter, which is just enough time to start another series, and a series on a book that I will confess is pretty cherished in my heart. It is the book of Philemon. And the reason that it is a cherished book in my heart is because it deals with something that is very needed by me. It deals with how to address personal conflict, how to accomplish reconciliation which is something that I am constantly 
needing to learn because I find myself dealing with conflict. And so the uh, letter to Philemon has always been an encouragement to me as it shows me how reconciliation in the body of Christ can happen. Conflict, I think, is probably uh, something I don't have to guess is something we all deal with. Everybody here dealt with some personal conflict in their life. If not, it's coming. Uh, You're either in one or you're coming into one when it comes to personal conflict. And as we deal with personal conflict, I think it's worth hearing a a story that was published in the Washington Post back in 1991. We were told this uh, in an article. It started out simply, as complicated things often do. On a night long ago, Dennis O'Brien walked into a restaurant called The Mousetrap. He was looking for friends, and when he found them, he turned to walk out. A cashier stopped him. Apparently, O'Brien had misplaced a red tab that the restaurant issued to its customers to keep track of their food and drinks. The mousetrap required a $5 fee for lost tabs. O'Brien was told. Now, it could have ended there, but it didn't. O'Brien could have paid the fee, but he wouldn't. The restaurant could have let him go, but it wouldn't. Instead, the dispute escalated over a decade into a series of suits and two countersuits in two states and in two countries. The restaurant has gone out of business, but the $5 red tab has grown to more than $165,000. That story reflects something about human nature. We seem bent toward conflict. Our natural tendency is to argue, to justify, to dispute, to hide, and sometimes just plain run away. We do that as our kind of natural instinct rather than admitting our wrong or or reconciling. That seems to be the way of the world. That seems to be common to our flesh. Jesus spoke to an issue similar to what Dennis O'Brien, our our, uh, culprit here, just experienced and offered a different way. Jesus spoke to us in the Sermon on the Mount and he said this, If you are offering your gift there before the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid your last penny. The question I have for all of us this morning Are you in a conflict right now where you are in the process of paying your last penny? I would rather pay the grief and endure the conflict than let this pass away. How many of us can think of someone right now that they are not at peace with? Someone that if I said their name, you would be flooded with angry thoughts. Someone that you have an entrenched disagreement toward, someone that you have a long-standing grudge 
somebody that maybe was a former close relationship that for whatever reason has gotten cold. We may not have an actual economic debt like our person in the story, but if these are true of us, we are bearing relational debts that are costly, costing us relationships, costing us friendships, creating for us strained workplaces, even broken families. So it is because of the universal nature of conflict and our tendency to entrench ourselves in conflict that I want to spend this month looking at Paul's letter to Philemon. This letter shows us a better way to deal with conflict, a way that comes through the gospel. The theme of Philemon is reconciliation in Christ. And you can see it very clearly in verse 5, which you will need your Bible to find because it's not on the printed handout. Philemon, by the way, is the last letter written by Paul. It's just before the book of Hebrews, right after the book of Titus. It's in the last third of your New Testament. But we read in verse 5 these words, Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. That verse tells us that Paul is thankful to this man Philemon because of his love for all the saints and for his faith in Christ Jesus. Something very interesting is being done in Paul's words there. He is saying, your faith in Christ Jesus, which is real, is inseparably connected to your love for all the saints, which is the church. What the letter of Philemon is doing is saying, you have a relationship of forgiveness with your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then by necessity, you have a relationship of love, forgiveness, and reconciliation with the body of Christ. Those two are held together in Paul's thought. And it's important for us as Christians to see the linkage as well. So as we look at this letter, we are going to see how the gospel in us affects our relationships with one another. Now let's look at some of the facts of the book. It is, first of all, a personal letter written by Paul while he was in prison in Rome. This is likely the imprisonment that is described the at the last chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 28. So he is in a Roman house arrest, and this letter is probably written around the years 60 to 62 AD. It has been written to address Paul's friend Philemon, who lives in a town called Colossae, which is in the area of modern-day Turkey. And he is writing to Philemon to receive back his runaway slave, named Onesimus, who Paul has recently converted. So that's, that's the lay of the book. Before we get into it in detail, I want to briefly overview the characters and the plot in this letter. There are basically, there's basically one conflict, and there are four different roles in view. First of all, we have the person Onesimus. He is the one that is in trouble. He, has, he was a, a slave of Philemon, he has run away from Philemon, deserting his service there. He has also apparently stolen something from Philemon on his way out. And he is a fugitive. He has broken the law. And if he is caught at any point, he will be sentenced most severely. A punishment of physical harm, maybe even death, could be awaiting him at any moment. So Onesimus is the one out there who is now seeking peace, seeking forgiveness. He is the peace seeker 
in this story. The second character, though, is Philemon. He is the one who lives in Colossae. He has a church in his house. He is the one who must receive Onesimus back. So his job in this story is to give peace, to give forgiveness. He is the peace giver. The third character in this story is is Paul. Paul is the friend of both Onesimus and Philemon. And so what is his responsibility, what is his heart, is to work peace, to make peace between these two conflicted individuals. He is the peacemaker in this story. And then the fourth character we find mentioned only once is the church that meets in Philemon's house, mentioned in verse 2. Though they seemingly are bystanders in this whole story, we are going to see that they play a critical role as peacekeepers in the church. Now, those are four different characters. We have four weeks till Easter. Those are each going to get one sermon. So we are going to look at each of those in turn. We're going to look at the peace seeker, the peace giver, the peacemaker, and the peacekeepers in separate weeks. This week, we are going to turn our attention to Onesimus. We are going to look at Onesimus' story to see how the gospel calls us to reconcile with the people that we have hurt. Onesimus' story asks us to consider who in our lives needs to hear the words, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And I ask for the sake of making this sermon uh, valuable to your spiritual well-being to take a moment and think, Who would be somebody that the relationship could be changed if I just said, I'm sorry? Full stop. I want you to think about that person as we go through this message. First, before we get into the story of Onesimus, there is some background we have to deal with because we have an issue in the book of Philemon that can be a bit of a roadblock for modern readers, and that is the issue of slavery. In the background of the book of Philemon, we have the story of Philemon, who is a slave owner, and Onesimus, who is a slave. And because of our our history as a nation, uh, it is easy to see Onesimus as the hero and Philemon as as the villain. And uh, that is understandable. There is a lot of sympathy. There is a lot of reason to, to have a heart and concern for Onesimus and his his situation. And so some people read the book of Philemon and they're, they're not able to, to profit from it because they struggle with the fact that there's that relationship in this letter. And second, that Paul, in writing this letter, doesn't seem to say anything against slavery or against Philemon for being a slave owner. And so there is a place here for some uh, frustration in the scriptures. So I think we need to deal with that issue if we're going to profit from the book of Philemon. And I want to say four things, basically. First, we come from a context where we look back at American African chattel slavery, which was entirely based on race. It was an entirely dehumanizing version of slavery. When we go and look at at, at the story of Philemon, we need to recognize that there are key differences between what slavery was in the Roman Empire versus what slavery was in American history. Slaves in the Roman Empire could be people who have sold themselves into slavery because it was the best way to deal with their debts. 
Slavery in the Roman Empire was not necessarily lifelong. Slaves in the Roman Empire did not look different than other people. It was not based on race. Slaves could potentially buy themselves out of freedom, or buy themselves out of slavery, and uh, some slaves, you know, were born into it, but many slaves uh, were, were in fact, uh, sold into it. Or, I'm sorry, were, in fact, uh, sold themselves into it. So there are some differences in, in slavery between what we are used to and what uh, happened in Rome. All of that is true, and a lot of pastors stop there. Still, it's not good. There's no, no way of talking about the institution of slavery and be, you know, okay with it or to somehow make it okay. Slavery is not good. It is, it is a result of the fall. The idea that you can own someone is, is, comes from the dehumanization that comes from the fall. It is a fallen condition. It is a fallen institution. But when we look at the letter of Philemon, we need to recognize something. It's just not the place where Paul could profitably address that issue. There was a higher crisis in front of Paul than the issue of slavery, and that was Onesimus' life. If Onesimus cannot find peace with Philemon, he is doomed. And so Paul must focus on that issue first. It would be like going into the hospital uh, with an amputated arm and high cholesterol. Both, Both will kill you. Both are serious. But Paul has to deal with the amputated arm before he can deal with the high cholesterol issue. And so he is going to address the personal conflict rather than the institution. Third, I want to say that Paul is clearly sowing seeds in the letter of Philemon that are a certain death to the institution of slavery. This letter is working to form these people around the identity of the gospel and of grace and of the family of God not according to the institutions of the Roman Empire. It is a new society that is being created where they are learning to live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ, which will mean for them as they apply the gospel these words from Paul. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When we get done looking at the book of Philemon, we will see that those seeds have been pressed down deep And though it has taken a while for the church to apply those, to bring those to fruition, they are clearly here in this letter. And the last thing I want to say is we must be careful about taking generic thoughts and covering over the specifics. Onesimus is the guilty party. He has stolen from Philemon. He has run away. It is Philemon that is the one that has been wronged. And so as we understand that context, I think it is uh, that, that is fruitful for us now that we can look at how the gospel has affected Onesimus as a runaway. When we look at Onesimus' story, we're going to see four changes. The gospel brings two runaways that makes them into peace seekers. Okay? We're ready for another slide, I think. The first, I'm going to give you all four of them just right off the top so you can see them at, at once. The gospel changes runaways from condemned to forgiven. The gospel changes runaways from outsiders to belongers. The gospel changes runaways from useless to useful. And the gospel changes runaways from runners to returners. We're going to look at each of these in turn. 
four changes the gospel brings to runaways that make them into peace seekers. First, let's look at the gospel changes runaways from condemned to forgiven. We see in verse 10, Paul writes, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now we recognize, as I've already shared, Onesimus's dangerous situation. He is in a fugitive state. He has run away. He has broken the law. A runaway slave has absolutely no rights in the legal system. And if he is caught, serious judgment and serious punishment awaits him. Indeed, Onesimus is in a situation where punishment is a question of when, not if. Now, I think that one of the the amazing things that the, the book of Philemon only leaves us to guess at is how in the world did Onesimus, a runaway slave from Colossae, which is modern Turkey, find himself in the presence of the Apostle Paul, who is in prison in Rome. There are 1,300 miles between these two locations. That's, that's like a needle in a haystack. Somehow, I'm, there are guesses by the commentators, none of them have anything uh, but, but probabilities to argue for them, but the point is, that somehow, against all odds, this runaway slave who had a sentence on him if he was caught at any time was able to move himself 1,300 miles through cities and, and boats and seas and all sorts of things and find himself in Rome, and not just find himself in a city of a, a million or more people, but find himself at the doorstep of the Apostle Paul. That's what happened. I don't know how it happened. I can tell you that I don't, even, I don't know, maybe Onesimus wanted that to happen. Maybe Onesimus didn't want that to happen. Paul had nothing to do with it. It is one of those experiences in history that we have to chalk up to providence. God determined that this runaway slave was not going to be lost, was not going to be condemned, was not going to be caught, arrested, and punished. He was going to be protected and guided to meet the one person in the entire Roman Empire who can bring this man peace and salvation. And God did it. The picture that we have here is like the parable of the, of the, um, the, the farmer who leaves the 99 righteous sheep to pursue the lost one. Onesimus matters to God because Onesimus is found by Paul and not by some slave catcher. That is an amazing event of providence. Now, when when Onesimus runs into Paul, which is good fortune, Onesimus first discovers he's in more trouble than he even thought he was in. Onesimus is told by Paul, you are more than a runaway slave. You are a runaway from God. Because we see here in these words, whose father I became in my imprisonment, this is language that speaks of what Paul did when he met Onesimus. He shared the gospel. The way that Paul became uh, Onesimus' spiritual father was because when he met Onesimus, he shared the gospel. He evangelized. He tells Onesimus that he is guilty and under judgment, not just 
from some Roman slave catcher, not just from some uh, slave master named Philemon. He is in danger of judgment from a holy God because he has lived his life in idolatry and rebellion. And unless he repents, he will perish before a holy God. And so Paul's first response is to give Onesimus the gospel because he needs Christ first. Yes, the serious situation that you have with Philemon, as grave as it is, does not exceed the far greater need that you have right now to be reconciled to a holy God. To know Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again so that you can have peace with God. Because if you do not have peace with God, whatever peace you find in this world is temporary and only only waiting to bring you into an eternal punishment. And so Paul recognizes the priority of giving Onesimus the gospel, and Onesimus readily receives it. Now I think it is important at this point to recognize that we are like Onesimus. We all share with Onesimus on this story. We have all come into this world as runaways and lawbreakers. We are all on borrowed time. We do not know when the fatal car accident is coming our way. We do not know when our heart just gives up beating. We do not know what our last breath is. We are all on borrowed time. We are all ready to be caught. And the question that is in front of us must be this. Have we done what Onesimus did? Have we heard the gospel which is preached right now in front of you and said, yes, I repent I put my faith in Christ. I need peace with God because if I do not have Christ, I am a condemned sinner. That must be dealt with by every one of us. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free you will be free indeed. If you have not received Christ, you are, as Scripture says, a slave of sin. And there will be a day where you will not be welcomed into the house of God. Only sons will be brought into the house of God. And it is the Son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for sinners who receive him that will take you from a slave of sin to a son of God. Forgiveness only comes to those who have stopped running. Let me ask, have you stopped running? Have you accepted the verdict of your guilty conscience and fallen upon Christ for his forgiveness and his life? There will be no life for those who continue to run from the gospel of God. Second, we see that the gospel changes runaways from outsiders to belongers. To belongers. I know that's not a real word, but it fits. <laughs> it's right. <clears throat> it needs to be a word. In verse 16, Onesimus, who left as a runaway slave, Paul describes him to Philemon as a beloved brother. Onesimus is described to Philemon, who were formerly slave and master, that Onesimus is a beloved 
brother. Now here's something that's fascinating as we study a little bit about what it was to be a slave in the first century. Onesimus is not a name. Onesimus is the word useful. Onesimus was given a label that was to describe his function. You are to be useful. Therefore, your name is Onesimus. As a slave, Onesimus didn't have a family, didn't have a home, didn't have an identity, didn't have a place where he belonged. He had no rights. He was simply useful. Useful, go do this. That was what he was. That is what slavery made him. And so, when the gospel comes to Onesimus, for the first time, perhaps in this man's life, he is called by Paul, my child. He has a home. He has a place where he belongs. A church has now become a home full of sisters and brothers. In receiving the gospel, Onesimus has gone from being an outsider to a person who belongs. The gospel has given Onesimus a family, a home, rights, an inheritance. Instantly, he goes from fugitive outsider to full-fledged son in the family of God. Listen to these words, which are for Onesimus and for us, from the book of Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Onesimus has gone from an outcast slave with a death sentence on him to one who is in the household of God, who calls the God who is on the throne, Abba, Father, and his family, brother and sister, and who has an inheritance that is eternal that cannot be taken away. He has gone from someone who is outside to someone who belongs in the family of God. This is a beautiful truth that I believe we have to come with the eyes of Onesimus to see what a treasure it is. Because it is true for all believers. Onesimus' story reminds us how we should cherish the family of God. Outside of the family of God, you have nothing. When you die, you have nothing. But in the family of God, you have sisters and brothers, mothers and fathers who are yours not just today and tomorrow, but forever in Christ. You have an inheritance By your holy God who has made himself your father. This is is the family that God has made for everybody who has a broken home. 
who has a, a, a world outside that thinks they're nothing. In here, you are brother and sister, and God is Father. You belong here no matter what the world says. That is the beautiful sweetness of the gospel. You belong. God says, you're mine, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. What a treasure it is to be a member of a church, to be a member of the household of God. So see, or part three, the gospel changes runaways from useless to useful. We're told in, in verse 11 that Paul says, uh, says this, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Now, as we just talked about what Onesimus' name means, we recognize that Paul is making a pun here. He is making a pun on the name Onesimus, saying, Onesimus, who was named useful, and yet who was formerly useless to you, has now become Onesimus, useful. So he is, he is saying that the gospel has changed this person who was apparently not loving life as a slave, doing pretty lousy work, and we can all understand that, working only out of fear, doing the bare minimum, trying to get away with as little as possible, He was known to Philemon as useless, as nearly good for nothing. But now Paul says, this man Onesimus is serving. He is serving the gospel. He is so useful to me, I can hardly give him back to you. His work is so important to the gospel. He is doing stuff that makes a difference eternally, and he is doing it well. He is doing it joyfully. Paul can hardly send Onesimus back. He can hardly afford to not have Onesimus with him. What an amazing change in the person of Onesimus as a result of the gospel. Oh, Onesimus is suddenly now living up to his namesake. Paul's pun is based on a new reality that comes from the gospel. What has happened? Onesimus is a new creation. He is a son of God. He no longer serves out of fear. He serves out of love. It is because I have been ransomed. I have been purchased by the blood of Christ. The Lord is my master in heaven, and I live for the one who laid down his life for me. How can you not be useful and industrious when you recognize that your life has been purchased to be part of a cherished, eternal member of the household of God. This is the beauty of the gospel that Onesimus experiences and that Onesimus wants to reveal to us. Christ redeems the useless, the good-for-nothings, the failures of this world and makes them his own. And in doing so, makes them useful and precious and invaluable. When we read the Gospels, we see this short little story where Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And Jesus comes to her, lays his hands on her, and takes the fever away. I don't know how serious the fever was. But once he laid his hands on, on her out of compassion, the fever leaves. 
And now that the woman has been released from the bondage of the fever of the sickness, what's the next thing she does? She gets up and serves. She gets up and and serves Jesus. That is what the gospel does. It takes us from the fever of uselessness and failure and and, and good-for-nothingness. It removes it. And we are so thankful and filled with new life by the gospel that we get up and we become useful servants of Christ. It is a beautiful picture. My question to you is, how do you serve the Lord? Are you motivated out of fear or are you motivated out of love? Onesimus wants you to know the gospel where you are motivated out of love for being purchased out of good for nothing and made invaluable. Now finally, or or number four, the gospel changes runaways from runners to returners. Onesimus was a runaway. He had stolen. He had a reputation of being a poor worker. He had every reason to believe that Philemon would punish him if he returned. Yet, he's returning. He's going back to Philemon. Look at verse 8. Paul says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. So Onesimus has the apostle Paul who could have said, I command you. Take back Onesimus. But the letter pulls back and says, I want this to be a free decision from you, uh, Philemon. I want you to decide for yourself based on what I'm about to say. So Onesimus doesn't have any guarantee as he's walking back to Colossae with this letter to Philemon's house that Philemon is going to do anything close to receiving him back. How scary to think about all of the possibilities. What if Philemon is so angry at me he doesn't forgive me? What if Philemon throws the book of the law against me and makes me pay every last penny of what I have done? Onesimus is not going back because he knows he is forgiven. He is returning with no guarantee. Let me ask you, would you do the same thing? Would you go back to somebody that you know you have wronged, that you know is justifiably angry at you? Would you go back? Well, that's a tough thing to think about. Perhaps we can just hide in the gospel. Say, I know I was wrong. So I have prayed. I said, God, forgive me for saying what I did or for betraying or for breaking that contract or for not being the person that person needed me to be. Forgive me for that. Wash me away and then never go back. When I was a little kid, I I can't remember what it was, but my dad was in a stressful situation and I wasn't being quiet when I should have been quiet. I was told to be quiet. I kept talking. I kept distracting him. And it was a stressful situation. And uh, my dad brought me uh, back a couple days later to say, you know, 
Uh, you really should say sorry for not obeying me when I was asking you to be quiet. And I said, no, it's okay, Dad. I, for, I asked uh, God forgiveness. It's okay. That's a childish thing to do. It fit when I was six. It was understandably wrong for a six-year-old to think that way. But how many of us still play that game? I'm forgiven from God. I don't need to deal with it with so-and-so. Is it necessary to go back? What the book of Philemon tells us is that the evidence of true conversion is true repentance. Not just vertical forgiveness and repentance, but horizontal forgiveness and repentance. We all think of the story of Zacchaeus, the little tax collector who had defrauded who knows how many people. Jesus comes to him in Jericho and he says, this day I'm going to have a meal at your house. And Zacchaeus comes down from the tree, is full of joy, and he says on his own initiative, if I have defrauded anybody, I'm going to pay them back fourfold, and I'm going to give half my money to the poor. You see, Zacchaeus recognized when he had received the grace of God, when he had received the grace of Christ, that that meant he needed to show that in in, in repentance for what he had done that made him need the grace. And so he shows repentance to his neighbors as he receives forgiveness from Christ. Onesimus' going back to Philemon shows that he is being led by a new heart, a gospel-driven, gospel-shaped heart. You see, Onesimus shows us what it means to understand the gospel. It means first that we recognize that that the grief of our sin. We recognize when we have come to the gospel... My sin has hurt people. My wrongdoing has damaged God's holy creation. And it has damaged relationships. And when we truly repent, we recognize the grief and the hurt that we have caused. And we want to take that away. The second thing that happens when we understand the gospel is we recognize that repentance is the only way to peace and reconciliation. If we do not turn back in repentance to fix the relationship, all we can do is live in the doghouse. There's no other place to be. You can run away or you can reconcile. And running is exhausting. It is where you pay your last penny. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 17. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Do you see that repentance must precede forgiveness? Those who repent are those who are forgiven. Those who repent to God are those who are forgiven from God. Those who come to their brother in repentance are those who can receive forgiveness. So when we refuse repentance, we are preventing forgiveness. That's a tragedy. Do you have someone that you need to say sorry to? Is there anger or tension or coldness, avoidance or distance or separation? Those are evidences that a relationship has been broken, has been strained by something. We want to rationalize I'm the boss, I'm the parent. 
They're just sensitive. That's my personality. Get over it. They're more wrong than I am. We make these excuses. But let me ask you, does any one of these come from the gospel? Does any one of these witness to the grace of the gospel? Onesimus' story shows that the gospel's power to change is to change us from runners to returners. When I was in a, my previous career, I had an email spat with, with a client, and he had done something stupid. I can't remember what it was, but it was stupid. It was, it was boneheaded. And he, he just put it out there in an email. I mean, it was dumb. And I was upset at him because what was dumb about it made me mad. And so I replied, and I gave him a dose of how dumb he was. And I replied all. Now, we do that, and the coworkers all around me said, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't have done that, but it's business. Just business. Just what you do sometimes. I couldn't let it stand. So I called this person. I said, I'm sorry. That was wrong of me. I shouldn't have done that. You're trying to do your best. Forgive me. And he said these words. He said, pardon me. Are you a Christian? That's the first time. Anyone has ever identified me as a Christian just because of what I did. You see, the number one reason to make amends, the number one reason to say sorry when you're wrong, is because it gives glory to Christ. You're obeying him, you're trusting him, you're honoring him with the words, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Do we want to be known as Christians? Or do we want to be known as those people who never say, I'm sorry? Onesimus shows us that as Christians, we have a better way than the world to deal with conflict. The gospel gives us the tools to make peace. If we refuse to seek peace, then we have, when we have wronged others, then we will find ourselves in a similar situation to Dennis in our story in the beginning. Our tab is just going to get bigger and bigger. The costs are always mighty. It is a grim and depressing picture. But the gospel gives us another way. The way of repentance. The way of returning. The way found in a sincere apology. And the will to make amends. And let me leave you with this. Those who repent can look forward to a different picture. As we are told In the Gospel of Luke, in the familiar parable of the prodigal son, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. My friends, you can pay your last penny refusing to admit you're wrong, or you can be wrapped in the embrace of forgiveness and reconciliation. Which do you want? Go and be reconciled.